490 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born, the Persian Empire was running the show. The Persians, who you might not have thought of this year or this decade or in your lifetime, were the big dogs in Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa five centuries before Jesus was born. And their intentions were to press into Europe, but the up-and-coming Greeks felt that they were ready to have their turn at the head of the table, and so things were coming to a head. On one occasion, the two armies met, the Greeks and the Persians. And the Greek military on that occasion was outnumbered by the Persians four to one. And in an amazing turn of events that you can go read about in your history books, 192 Greek soldiers died while over 6,400 Persian soldiers were killed, which is a ratio of 33 to 1. The minority beat the majority. When they were outnumbered 4 to 1, they won by, if you will, 33 to 1. And the Greeks, unsurprisingly, wanted to send word of victory to Athens. And tradition, whether it's fact or myth, uh, the Lord knows, but it's been told many times. Tradition tells us that the Greeks enlisted one of their soldiers, who was also a professional runner named Pedepides, to run as quickly as he could from the battlefield all the way to Athens to herald the good news of victory. Track with me here. Again, tradition tells us that Pedepides covered the 26-mile distance in about three hours, and shortly after making his way into the city center, and announcing the message of victory at the battle on the plains of Marathon, he died from exhaustion. That's how the running event that's now in the Summer Olympics, the Marathon, was born. So friends, I've also traveled not near that distance and not near with that physical exhaustion, but with much greater burden than Pedepides could have imagined. I walked two blocks to an inner city community center to herald much better news of a much more significant victory. And I want to give it to you in official terms. Imagine Pedepides, worn out, coming into the middle of Athens, and if he had one of those old-school trumpets with the banner hanging down and all his military uh, prestige and garb on. I want you to imagine. In official terms, that I come running in the back door and make my way up to the platform to announce to you the good news from the King. That at the cost of His priceless life, the Prince of the Eternal Kingdom has voluntarily satisfied the incalculable debt that you owed to His sacred majesty. And from this time forward, those who believe are legally exonerated from all their crimes and they are now and henceforward freed from the sentence of death. Moreover, you have also been elected by the king as objects of his love on behalf of the prince. His majesty welcomed you not only into his kingdom, but also as an adopted heir into his forever family. By authority of the heavenly throne, the legal terms of the declaration are irrevocably sealed with the imprint, imprint of the king's cross-shaped signet 
and by direct order of the crown, your record shall ever read exculpated. Meaning, not guilty. How do you suppose that the Athenians responded on the day that Pedipides came running into the city? 490 B.C., an improbable victory over the mighty Persians. He came huffing and puffing, heralding the message of victory, and then tradition tells us he fell over dead. Dear ones, how have you responded to the good news of God striking the gavel of divine justice against the anvil of the cross of Christ for your pardon? The Summer Olympics continue the event of the marathon, but the original marathon didn't exist for the same reason it exists today. The marathon originally existed because of the message that it contained. The marathon was not the point. The point was to deliver the message of freedom and to elicit the right response from those who heard. So again, with my trumpet and its banner and all the royal garb of the king, I'm here to tell you that the captain of the Lord's army has won your everlasting victory from the tyranny of Satan and from sin's dominion through the seemingly impossible means of the death of His own Son. And today's text commands you to respond to that news in a very specific way. Today's sermon text is Hebrews chapter 13. I'll read a couple of verses together. Verses 15 and 16. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Hear the word of the living God. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Verse 16. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. O oh, Father, would You crack the door of heaven one inch? And let us look inside at the smile that beams from your face in the pleasure you get from your obedient people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we'll zero in on what may seem like an insufficient amount of verbiage for you for an entire sermon, but I trust that by the time we're done you'll see that it's worthy of a couple thousand sermons. We'll focus on verse 16. Last week, we looked at verse 15, which tells us the right vertical response to the good news of the Gospel. Today's text, verse 16, tells us the right horizontal response to the good news of the Gospel. And you could summarize the two verses by saying the Gospel flood, the Gospel avalanche, is so powerful that when the love of God in Christ torrents down on your soul in saving new birth reality, when Christ becomes precious to you, the Gospel is so powerful 
that when it floods a person's life, there's an irresistible ricochet upward and outward. Verse 15 and verse 16. Verse 15 is that upward response. Through Jesus then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips which give thanks to His name. And I was just praying silently as I trust so many of you were during that prayer time that I wish would have lasted three hours instead of 15, 20 minutes. I was just praying that the frequency on the dial of your praise would not be hard for God to find. You know when you're dialing the radio and the old way we used to do it, kids, is you would turn a knob and uh, you would look for that station that was kind of in between the stations you could barely pick it up. I pray that it's not difficult for God to find the frequency of your praise. He has tuned your voice unique, as we said last Sunday, in all creation to render unto Him a frequency of praise that no other created object can render to Him. And so that was last Sunday's focus, the upward response to the Gospel. And today's response is outward. There are two actions in verse 16, and there is one reason, one goal, one aim, one end. And the verse is set up, maybe you caught it as I read it, it's set up as a cause and effect. And... Do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. There's a cause effect. If A happens, then B is guaranteed to happen. Brother Rick called last week's verse, as I mentioned, the most important application text in the whole Bible, and I do not believe that that's an overstatement. I join him in that assessment of verse 15, especially when we see how it's coupled together by the Holy Spirit with verse 16. And even though verse 16 is arranged as a cause and effect, and I really agonized in sermon preparation for those of you who care about which way to tackle it. But I want to tackle it backwards. I want to tackle it first with the effect and unpack the end of the verse, and then I trust our appetites for those who are in Christ will be so wet to obey the beginning of the verse that the sermon will have already preached itself to you. I want to work backwards. I want to see with you, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, the obvious motivation or goal that's in this text. And that comes in the last little phrase. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I get that our hearts are so slow. And mine's probably the slowest in the bunch. But when you find inspired series of letters coalescing into words, that are comprehensible to our little pea brain that have flowed into the text of Scripture from the heart of the incomprehensibly glorious God, and your little brain and mine are able to track along with the thoughts of the infinite God, and He says to us, this is what pleases I pray that the slow starting heart that may have come into the room a few moments ago is instantly ignited with interest. 
What could possibly bring pleasure to this mighty being from my little life? I want to break the point into two parts. First, the prospect of pleasing this God. And second, the sacrifices that please Him. The prospect of bringing pleasure to God. Under our first point, sacrifices that please God, the first consideration is the word please. Dig into that impregnated word with prayer right now. Ask God in the privacy of your heart, Oh God, cause me to see this prospect of bringing pleasure to You as the most enticing, alluring, enchanting, magnetizing, awe-inspiring, captivating reality in the universe. Look at the end of verse 16. The word pleased. Your translation may render it pleasing. It's owing to that word that today's sermon is titled on your little blue guide, Gladdening the Heart of God. Do you know as... Angie read during the prayer time that the living God rejoices over His people with shouts of joy. He sings songs of victory over us with a big smile over His face. Sinclair Ferguson in his books and sermon about he- his book and sermon about heaven, he-, he he likened us walking into the gates of heaven, not to seeing pearly gates and angels with wings and streets paved with gold and all those things that we sometimes consider because of biblical imagery and language, but he said the first thing you'll see is an ear-to-ear smile from your God who loves you and has always delighted over you since you came into His family. That word, pleasing to God. The Bible has so many things to say, and I trust many of you know what many of those things are. The Bible has so many things to say about the fruits of a true Christian life. The fruits that will be born by the work of the Holy Spirit as we abide in Christ, John 15. Those fruits irresistibly come out like apples on the ends of a branch of an apple tree and oranges on the end of a branch of of an orange tree. Those fruits just come out of a life that's tethered to Christ and grafted in to His fullness. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us more about those fruits. And Galatians 5 tells us even more about those fruits. And while there are so many fruits that do distinguish a child of God from a child of the devil, and those who say, don't judge me, need to remember that the same sermon, in fact, same chapter, Matthew 7, where Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged because by your standard of measure, it will be meted out to you. It will be measured also to you. It's in that same chapter, in fact, in the same complete thought down in verse 13 where the Lord Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. Yes, we should judge each other according to the standard that God has given us. And I know that you know There are many, many, many fruits that distinguish a child of God from a child of the devil. But there's a root buried deep down in the soil of a Christian's life that dictates the kind of fruits that are produced. You know the old illustration, you don't just go tape an apple to a barren tree and functionally make it a true apple tree. You can't take the fruit and just tape it onto your life 
You have to have the right root, which produces the product, and the root at the base, the bottom, deep down, taproot in the soul of a born-again Christian is a constraining ambition to please God. This is what we want more than anything else. Not only to do things that please Him, but to be through and through a pleasure to Him. That's what we want. We want our whole life to be 2 Corinthians chapter 2. An aroma of Christ to God. The real Christian wants to honor God in everything. And this verse tells you that that is a real possibility. The prospect of pleasing God. You remember in 1 Samuel 15, when King Saul disobeyed the Lord by keeping Agag and some of the best of his livestock alive instead of destroying them all as God had commanded. And you might say, well, my goodness, God's such a fear-mongering tyrant. Why would he say destroy everybody and everything, every man and woman, every child, all the livestock? Well, you might remember that when Israel came out of Egypt and they had nothing, they had the clothes on their back. And they're wandering around as a homeless people who depend on God for daily bread, literally, it's the Amalekites that keep pestering and attacking them and not giving them passage through the land. And for years and years and years, God had been long-suffering with this rebellious nation and given them plenty of opportunity to repent, and they wouldn't turn away from doing the Lord's people harm because they hated, their God. They hated Israel's God. And so eventually in 1 Samuel 15, you find the account where Saul was commanded to destroy them all. But he kept Agag, and as I mentioned, the best of the livestock alive instead of destroying them because his plans, he thought, were better than God's plans. Well, Samuel comes and rebukes Saul. And you remember what the prophet said to the king? 1 Samuel 15, has the Lord, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. If like Saul, you also are wondering if God might be impressed today with your great works while you're living in known disobedience to God in some other way, the answer is clearly no. Jesus even tells churchgoers in Matthew 5, the same Sermon on the Mount where the whole do not judge text is found, in Matthew 5, Jesus tells the churchgoers, before you present your offering at the altar first, go be reconciled to your brother. If you're living in disobedience to that command, what pretense do we have to su suspect that God is pleased with our other worship? That's why our sermon text tastes like candy to a real Christian. It really is one of those many places in the Bible that tells us explicitly the things that please our great God. And I'm only trying to prepare you to dive into that impregnated Word. We don't have to wonder until the final day like every pagan religion. Line up anyone you want to, put them all in the queue, and every one of them are wondering until the final day if their good outweighed their bad and if they were able to appease their deity and please their God. Did they do enough? We don't have to wonder. We know right here, right now, 
what is acceptable in the sight of our Maker. So let me ask you, does anything seem more attractive to you than the smile of the happiest person in the universe? The Apostle Paul said of his own life, whether he lived or whether he died, there was one constraining ambition on his soul. He said, interestingly, that home was heaven and absent is earth. And he said in 2 Corinthians 5, whether I'm at home in heaven or whether I'm absent on earth, quote 2 Corinthians 5, 9, I want to be pleasing to the Lord. That's a Christian. That's what a real Christian is. A Christian is a person who has been bought by Jesus' blood, clothed in Jesus' righteousness, and given an inward appetite to gladden the heart of our God. That's just what a Christian is. And if that doesn't motivate you, then I say with a broken heart that Christianity is not for you. That's what the Christian life is. Your little life and my little life can cause the heart of the Almighty to be roused with delight. Is it possible that a changeless God can be, and I'm going to speak carefully, changed in His inward disposition and delight? Is it possible that the immutable God of Malachi 3 or the immovable heavenly rock of Gibraltar of Psalm 18 or the unshifting Father of Light in James 1 or the constant I Am of Exodus 3 can be moved to delight by my life's offering unto Him. Is that possible? Do you believe that your life can move the Almighty? Are you not jolted with a lightning bolt of serious interest? Does it not send you on red alert? Do you know what the Old Testament saints asked? When they were trying to figure out, can God take pleasure in me? The reason they were trying to figure it out is because they were pained painfully with with an awareness of their own sinfulness. You've all been made in the image of God. You have a unique capacity to bring Him glory. Friends, there is value intrinsically in your humanity. God made you wonderfully. Now, that has been grossly marred by our sin. So the Old Testament prophets trying to figure out the question, can God be pleased by my life? We're asking questions like Micah asked in Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings? Shall I come to Him with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Now listen to this. He's not asking rhetorical questions. He wants to know, can God be pleased by my life? And he says, shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do you hear what he's asking? He's asking and contemplating what could possibly please this God from a life that is so tainted by depravity and sinfulness. And he's contemplating very serious steps of self-sacrifice to get from here to there. 
Our author in one breath tells us what will please our God. But you've got to get to the same conclusion that the prophet Micah got to. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is what God requires. And none of you have done that. Jesus is the only one who has perfectly done justice, loved kindness, and walked humbly with his God. Which is why Romans 8 says all the love of God, Romans 8.39, is bound up in Him. And until you get in the One who has perfectly pleased God, nothing you say or do could ever please Him. Every attempt to praise God only worsens your damnable predicament until you come to God through faith in Christ. That's exactly the point of Hebrews 13. So the prospect of pleasing God, and I told you there was two things I wanted to look at, the sacrifice that sacrifices that please Him, and then we'll go into them one by one. So under our first point, the sacrifices that please God. First, the prospect of pleasing Him. Second, the sacrifices that we offer to Him must themselves be embedded in and rooted in another sacrifice. Look at verse 16. It ends with this massively important phrase, with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now, if you see the word sacrifices in verse 16, just scan backwards and look at the same word it appears in verse 15. Sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. In this significant portion of this chapter, verses 9 to where we're at in verse 16, the author has been playing off of the Old Testament sacrificial system. We've talked about that many weeks in a row. And the author's helping us understand that the soul-saving sufficiency that we must have is not in what we do for God, but what, in God, what God has done for us in Christ. Verses 9 to 11. The author wants you to see in your mind's eye thousands of animal carcasses whose blood had been spilled as a sacrifice in the temple, now carcasses dead being carried outside the city of Jerusalem to be dumped to be burned. And when he puts that picture in your mind, he wants you to remember that he's already told us in chapter 10, all of those sacrifices had one primary effect. Hebrews 10.3 They remind us of our sin. Hebrews 10.4 They never take away our sin. Now you see all these sacrifices. Having refreshed our mind in verses 9, 10, and 11 about all these Old Testament sacrifices, the writer again picks up the idea of sacrifice in verse 15 and 16. Sacrifice of praise. Sacrifices that are pleasing to Him. But the best part of any sandwich is the stuff that's in the middle, right? So we don't say, I want a bread sandwich. What do we say? We don't even mention the bread. Well, here's one of my favorites. I want a roasted turkey with avocado and mango chipotle sauce. Bang! That's a good one. I don't even talk about the bread. Well, the best part of this sandwich, verses 9 to 16, is not the things on the end, it's the stuff in the middle. And these verses are like a sandwich of the most delectable variety. The bread of the verses is the Old Testament sacrifices, verses 9 to 11. The New Testament sacrifices are verse 15 and 16. But the meat of the text is in verse 12, 
where the Lord Jesus Christ offered his own blood as a sacrifice for our sins to sanctify us forever in God's sight. Now, put on your thinking cap. This is the deep end of the swimming pool. This is big boy and girl Christian theology 101. Contrary to what I've heard so many times in many pulpits in this land, and contrary to what I've heard and read in many books and at many of the biggest and brightest stages of evangelicalism in the West, contrary to what I've heard many times, the effect of Christ's sacrifice did not eliminate the sacrificial system. It elevated the effect of the sacrifices that we are now commanded to offer. The old covenant order, God Himself came down to dwell in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple on earth. In the new covenant order, the Christian is drawn up into the true Holy of Holies, the throne room of heaven where God's presence forever dwells, and we have the opportunity now through sacrifice to bring delight to our King. So now here we're ready for the question. What will you bring Him? What will you lay at His precious feet? How are you going to respond to the fact that Pheidippides has run 26 miles to come to your city and tell you good news of victory? What are you going to do now that Jesus has dipped the quill of God's love into His own righteous blood and signed over to you all the promises of God? What are you going to bring to the Almighty now that He has extended to you exculpation, not guilty, and guaranteed to you unending life in the age to come with His full provision and power. Last week is the vertical response. This week is the horizontal outward response. So all we've said so far is God can be pleased by your life. If that doesn't light your fire, I don't know what will. We've also said that there's one sacrifice, that is the sacrifice of Jesus, in which all our sacrifices to God must be embedded. Does verse 15 not explicitly say it? Through Him then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. Jesus is the only only channel by which we may bring pleasure to God, period. The Holy Spirit empowers us to flee to Christ for refuge from the wrath to come and for worship that brings honor to God's name. So now we're ready for the point of the verse concerning the cause. The effect with such sacrifices God is pleased. What sacrifices? Now I want you to prepare yourself for God to speak to you. Pastor Nathan began the service by saying take a moment and ask God to prepare your heart to worship Him. I believe God is about to radically answer that prayer. I want you to prepare yourself for God to speak to you. God is about to employ this decorated dust to tell you what He wants you to do for Him. He's about to tell you how you can please Him. Are you ready? There are two things that you must never neglect. There are two things you must never forget. There are two things you must never cease to do. Are you ready? 
do good and share. You got it? Those are the instructions in verse 16. That's why Matt Nash, in a long text thread we shared this morning about this passage, says this text is about the flow of God's love. Meaning there's a golden chain linked together. God's love to you in Christ flowing through you. God through you to others in Christ. I would have expected the kind of things that Micah surmised. With what kind of sacrifices will he be pleased? What would appease the Almighty? Should I offer my firstborn son for the sins of my soul? Would that be enough to dash my children against the rock and my secondborn breathes a deep sigh of relief? (laughs) Obviously, verse 16 is not an exhaustive list. We have the Psalm 51's of the Bible, a broken and contrite spirit. That's a sacrifice that God will not despise. But why would these two expressions be right here in Hebrews 13.16 at the end of what I would argue is the most explicitly Christ-exalting epistle in the whole Bible? Why would this expression of praise horizontally be the right response to the twelve and a half chapters of Gospel that we have been considering for six and a half years? Here's the open secret of the Christian life. The Gospel reorients you to be like Christ. God makes His people others-oriented. A Gospel-influenced response is exactly what these two instructions are conveying to us. The responses are arising from the heart of someone who is working to please God. Let me say it again. Working to please God. Working to please God. We're not antinomians. We don't throw the law away but we're also not legalists who believe that our, our works earn God's favor by accumulating righteousness through our deeds. We are saved by works. It's just not our works that we're saved by. It's the work of Christ. This verse is telling us that we are to work to please God. I want to say it again. If you're sitting on your hands in Christian faith hoping to grow, good luck with that. You must work to please God but you must work from your salvation, not for your salvation. And if you don't get that difference right, that's the difference in heaven and hell. That is the difference in heaven and hell. You try to work for your salvation, you perish forever. You work from your salvation and you prove that you're a beneficiary of it. Matt was right. These verses are about the flow of love. Faith working through love The Gospel fixes your heart orientation. 1 John 4.19, I thought for a long time, meant we love God because He first loved us. But that's not what the verse says. The verse says we love because He first loved us. And it's horizontal in its nature. I love you because God loved me first. You must love one another because God loved you first. That's 1 John 4.19. The Gospel fixes your heart orientation. The Gospel causes you to live for a new number one and it's not you anymore. That's what these two commands are about. The world will know that you're a disciple of the Savior by your love for one another. John 13.35, that's what Jesus said. So this is what we find in Hebrews 13.16. 
And it's already been beautifully described in Hebrews 10. Do good and share. You didn't want to do that before you got saved. You could have mustered up willpower. You could have pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. And there are a lot of unregenerate people who look like they're do-gooders and look like they're good at loving. But to love somebody best, you cannot love them first. Only when the cord of three strands is woven together, God Himself and His triune person comes and takes you as His own prisoner of His love can you do good and share in a way that brings Him glory. Hebrews 10 said it this way, and some of you have it memorized. Hebrews 10.24 Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, in a hot gym, are you able to listen to this verse? Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I have no idea why they translate it that way. Because the direct object in the verse is one another. Hebrews 10.24 literally is, let us consider one another. And as I think about you, how can I stimulate you to love God and His people more and to perform deeds that bring Him glory. It's not consider a bunch of programs that might help some indiscriminate people. It's consider one another. Think about one another. How can you do something that would catapult somebody to make advance in their love for the Savior and love for His people? Which is why we always ask the elders at elders meeting like we'll have this afternoon, describe your love for the people blank space if that's not increasing something's terribly broken not with elders only but with anybody who would profess to be a child of the king consider one another how to stimulate one another to loving good good deeds it's the great heart flip when you're born again you begin to love what god loves and you begin to love the things that god loves in the order that god loves them i promise you i'm going to deal with do good and share and we're almost there but I want to give you the list in order of God's top two loves because your list has to match his list and your list has to be in the same order as his list God's top two loves in order are God and his people you have to love him first And you'll never love anybody best until you love God first. That's exactly what Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 is about. 15, vertical. 16, horizontal. This is the great commandment. This is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's verse 15 and 16. This is Christianity 101. When God takes up residence in your life on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ, He reorders your loves. The Gospel causes you to begin to long for God to be honored and for His people to be helped. I've tried to say in very expanded ways, if that's not you, These two instructions will do nothing except incriminate you on the day of judgment. The more you try to obey these commands without Christ in your life by faith, the more guilty you become in the sight of God. Now we're ready to talk about these two things. Do not neglect 
doing good and sharing. Do not neglect that. God loves. God takes pleasure. That's the word. God delights. God's heart is gladdened. That's the sermon title. God loves it when you show your love for God by letting God's love flow through you to other people that God loves. He loves that. You know He could zap the person next to you with a lightning bolt of His grace. He doesn't need you or I, but He loves to employ you in ministry to them, which is His ministry to them through you, so that He gets more glory in more lives. He doesn't need us, but He loves to use us. Do not neglect to do good and to share. What is this sharing? Verse 16, sharing (laughs) brings pleasure to God. I love it. Not at all what I would have expected God to say. Seriously? Isn't this what we've all been trying to teach our kids since they were old enough to hold the little chew toy in their hand? Is God seriously pleased with our sharing? The words literally koinonia, fellowship. It's a loaded statement that has been attributed to Martin Luther where he said, God does not need our good works, but your neighbor sure does. Let us stir one another up to love and good deeds. Let us gladden the heart of our God by doing good. God's not only taking aim in this verse at our distorted sense of self-importance. We're not number one anymore. It's all about pleasing God. But He's also seeing to it that we understand that His main goal is not to make much of us. Now this might be subtle in the text, but I believe it's in the text. That is, there's nothing in this verse said about you. There's nothing in this verse said about what you do for you. It's all about you pouring yourself out for the sake of others. God does not save us to show us how awesome we are. He saves us so we can forever enjoy with His people how awesome He is. Doing good for others requires that you obey Philippians 2.3. You have to consider other people more important than yourself. But notice that God's not only telling you to have mere sentimentality. What good can I do for other people? But He's telling you to actually do something about it. That is, to share. He's starting to meddle with all your stuff. Back in Hebrews 13.2, a couple months back when we were preaching on that, do not neglect, same word as in verse 16, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For in so doing, some of you have entertained angels without knowing it. I challenged everybody to take your most valuable material possession. Your most expensive material possession, your house key. And set it on your living room floor and get on your hands and knees and give the thing to the Lord Jesus. That's what Hebrews 13.2 is about. Maybe it would help you to go to the shop and have a new key cut and put a ribbon on it and say, this one belongs to Jesus. That's what Hebrews 13.2 is about. Your house is not your house. Don't neglect showing hospitality. Do not stop doing that. Well, this verse is do not neglect doing good. God's going far. He's going much, much deeper into your pocketbook than just your house key. He wants it all. He wants every bit of everything you have and He wants every bit of you. Now, I believe that uh, we're not going to go to politics and economy too deep, but I do believe that capitalism is superior to socialism as a nation's economic system. And I believe that a land of opportunity has proven very fertile soil 
for ingenuity and industry, for people who are created in God's image to, to be able to thrive and to be a blessing. And I also believe that capitalism has lied to us because I think it inherently rears us in an aquarium that causes us to believe that what we have belongs to us. And that is wrong. You have to do good and share. Now before people accuse me of espousing vows of poverty that need to be taken, allow me to say very clearly that I believe Jesus endorsed personal wealth building. That's another sermon for another time. But before you can own anything biblically, you must have the experience of joyfully giving it all to the Lord. And if you've never given everything you have to the Lord, then you don't own it yet. You don't even know how to steward it yet. Then and only then are you capable of truly enjoying for the glory of God the things that you own. The New Testament church understood this, and if Grace Church is in any sense truly Christian, then what I'm about to read to you will not sound strange, and your first reaction to it will not be, how can I poke holes in that so it will make sense with the way I want to live my life? Listen carefully and brace yourself. Those who had believed, Acts 2, were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Acts 4. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and none of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them all. Here it comes again. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. You know that Hebrews is written to real people, right? Just like you and I, and from the end of chapter 10, we learn that some of these real brothers and sisters in Christ in this little church were full of people whose houses were destroyed, whose property was stolen because they identified themselves as Christ followers. So what did the church do? They stepped up and met the need. And the writer is saying under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that pleases God. This is basic Christian practice. Our text wants us to know that if we will live like this, how can I do good for you? How can I consider you? What are your needs? Not mine, but yours. And I'll trust that God will put me on somebody else's heart, but I'm going to think about you. What are your needs and how can I share with you? Well, application in closing would be very simple. Do good and share. And don't neglect doing that. First, do good. Don't worry about how to come up with a list of people on a blank notebook paper that you can do good for. God is writing your list for you. The names are already inscribed. Their names, according to Galatians 6.10, are fellow members of your local church. That's who you should especially do good to. And according to Hebrews 10.24, you should think about those people, that particular list of people. And as you consider them one by one, 
God commands you to endeavor to put into practice innumerable ways that you can think of with your sanctified imagination and listening to them ways that you can do them good. And according to our text, if you'll do that, the heart of God will be made glad by your little actions. I love the way Hebrews 6 says it. God is not unjust so as to forget the love that you have shown to His people. If He forgets, then He's not God anymore. He will never forget one little action. So do good and share. Instead of hoarding your possessions and barricading yourself off from the world and living in our isolationist, cultural way of going about things and putting a veneer of Jesus on top of it, instead of that, think about your family of faith. Think about ways that you can bless others with the resources that God has given to you. And I'm not only thinking about your material resources. In fact, that would be last on my list. Four things, I would say, are resources every single one of you have and we should all use to bless one another, to share with one another, are intellectual resources. Older ladies, and I know none of you want to think of yourself as older ladies, but Titus 2 commands you to disciple younger women. And you have intellectual, scriptural resources that you can deposit into the next generation. Chronological resources, your time, you can donate that to be a blessing to somebody else, whether in their presence or out of it. Relational resources, you can connect people to circles of access that would be helpful to them. And then material resources. You can get involved in the blessing of giving to others in the faith family. And I love the way Paul said it to the Ephesian elders. Again, another little local church. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. That He Himself said it's more blessed to give than receive. If we shouldn't want a blessing when we give to one another, Paul should have said, forget what Jesus said about being blessed when you give. No, he said, he said remember what He said. Nine and a half years with Grace Church, whether it was on our old platform that's called the Table, little techno gadget, or the new platform called the City, or in private conversations, or through Grace Groups, or through interpersonal conversations. I remember standing in the hallway on the small side of bridges, if some of you were around for those red chair days. And I remember in the hallway hearing a conversation about a real need being met by somebody in the body for somebody else in the body. And I immediately... God loves that. God loves it. How many times have we seen online and through email or via a small group or some interpersonal relationship God caused needs to be met in this faith family? It happened, I'm well aware, in a situation yesterday. And God loves it. You have to throw all of you into the pot with God's people. Every bit of you. All that you have, all that you are with God's people. Imagine that you live in Athens in the 8th century B.C. You're sitting in the city square by the fountain and Pheidippides comes racing in, huffing and puffing, shouting good news of victory over the Persian army. Now imagine how everybody in the city square would be lit with joy and begin to go spread the good news. Imagine the party and the festivity and everything that would come along with that occasion. Now imagine that it's the first century you're living in the little town of Bethany right beside Jerusalem. You're tying up your donkey and her colt, which a week earlier had been taken for a special occasion. 
And you're tying this donkey and this colt up on your front porch post when a couple of women come running into town shouting, He's alive. He's risen from the dead. Romans 4.25, your justification has been purchased. How would you respond? Hebrews tells you the answer. Jesus, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. For here, we do not have a lasting city. Don't hold on to that. But we are seeking the city which is to come. Lay up treasures in that. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. Why? For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I believe that. Let's loot the treasure chest together and get in on as much of that as we possibly can on this side of heaven. Finally, if you have a need, physically, materially, emotionally, spiritually, and you don't let us know, you're robbing this church of an opportunity to please God. And we want all the blessing we can get. Don't you dare hold back. Because God put you here and He put all the rest of us here because we're constantly going to be taking turns figuring out who's in need. And we're constantly going to have the opportunity because God divvies out the resources the right way to the right people at the right time for everybody to be taken care of. So don't hold back. Whether you're on the giving end or the receiving end. Let's ask God to make us that kind of people. Father, we do ask that we would never neglect to do good and share, and we would be a true Christian church. Just like the one we read about in Acts 2 and Acts 4, and that we would be the exuberantly happy people that bring pleasure to our God. We ask this for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.